0: Coming up on Economics Explored.
1: The concept of net zero sounds a bit, you know, it's become almost part of the uh, general conversation, yet I'm not sure many people know what net zero means. What it literally means is that we have to return the global climate to what it used to be before the industrial and agricultural revolutions. That is, every tonne of greenhouse gases that is put into the atmosphere by humans and other animals is taken out of the atmosphere by plants and oceans. That's it. Um, And when we did that, when the world used to work that way, we had a stable climate.
0: Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 108 on COP26, the Conference of the Parties 26, a global climate change conference being held in November 2021 in Glasgow, Scotland. What's it all about and why is it important? That's what we're focusing on in this episode. My guest this episode via Zoom from Melbourne, Australia, is Tony Wood, Program Director for Energy and Climate Change at the Grattan Institute, a leading Australian public policy think tank. Prior to joining Grattan in 2011, Tony spent 14 years working at Origin Energy, a major Australian energy company, in senior executive roles. From 2009 to 2014, Tony was also a Program Director of Clean Energy Projects at the Clinton Foundation. In this role, Tony advised governments in the Asia-Pacific region on the effective deployment of large-scale, low-emission energy technologies. January 2018, Tony was awarded a member of the Order of Australia in recognition of his significant service to conservation and the environment, particularly in the areas of energy policy, climate change and sustainability. Please check out the show notes for links related to this episode and also for any clarifications of points made in the episode. You can see the show notes via your podcasting app and also at the Economics Explored website, economicsexplored.com. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or previous episodes, please send them to contact at economicsexplored.com. I'd love to hear from you. Right ho! now for my conversation with Tony on COP26, in which I'm joined by my adept economics colleague, Ben Scott. Thanks to Tony and Ben for participating, and also thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his help in producing the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Tony Wood, Director of the Energy Program at the Grattan Institute. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. It's, nice, it's uh, great to have you on, Tony. Tony, you're a well-known commentator here in Australia on energy and climate change issues, and, uh, and my colleague uh, Ben and I both thought you'd be good to uh, to have on the show. So Ben, uh, ben Scott's joining me. Ben is uh, a research officer at uh, Dept Economics, so... Ben, good to have you back on too. Cheers, on Jim. On the show, excellent, excellent. Now, Tony, we've got this uh, COP twenty six meeting coming up in Glasgow, in uh, at the end of October and in early November, isn't it? So, why is this so important? I'm just interested in why this particular meeting is getting so much attention. Because it sounds like like we've, we have the do we, we must have these COP meetings every year or so, given we're up to. COP26, why is this one seen as so important?
1: Well, I think um, people have a very interesting habit of thinking every every next one is going to be very important uh, and they turn out not to be as exciting as they expected. This one's a bit unusual, of course, because as with the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, this is actually the 2020 COP that was now held over to this year. So both the UK, who were supposed to um, be the host of the 2020 COP in Glasgow, um, are now co-hosting this with uh, Italy uh, as well. So that complicates things. The reason it's more interesting I think is there's two far. One's international, one's domestic. Um, the international aspect is that every fifth one uh, of these is one where some of the more, some of the bigger decisions have been taken. Um, and that's one of these uh, because it was meant for 2020. and this is where uh, having made big commitments back at the previous fifth one in Paris, the Paris Agreement that emerged from that COP um, is now effectively being reviewed. And all the countries who are signatories to that agreement are expected to be coming to this meeting with um, updated uh, commitments, remembering that the big change of the Paris Agreement was bottom-up rather than top down. The domestic reason is for people like our Prime Minister, probably even more interesting in that, yeah, you know, we've had seen, we have seen previous leaders of both the Labour and the Liberal side of government lose their jobs over climate change. And I think if if nobody more than anybody else, Scott Morrison, is determined not to be another one,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. another dead body on the field of um, the climate (laughs) wars. Um, And in addition to that, it it actually, the timing of this is interesting because it's in the lead-up to the next federal election, uh, and climate change was an issue at the last election. Arguably, the the way Labor ran that campaign could have contributed to their loss at the last election. So it's... uh, Become quite interesting. You know, you've got a new uh, Labor leader since the uh, last election. So, all that means that, you know, the combination of domestic politics and international politics, plus the fact that Biden took over from Trump with a very different agenda on climate change, I think has contributed to why this is getting the sort of attention it has.
0: Right. Can I just ask you about Paris? So, you mentioned that the big change there was we were going bottom up rather than top down. What exactly do you mean by that, Tony?
1: Well, the attempt previously was to get the board process, the, the whole conference and the leaders of the world, whoever they, you think they might be, to agree what we're going to do and we'll just tell everybody to do it. Uh, it turned out, of course, that we're talking about 190 you know, sovereign governments who don't necessarily like being told what to do. And of course, Australia often is one of those. We like to be part of a member of the club, but we don't like being told by the club president what we should do. Um, so there was that dynamic to it. Well, just wasn't working at the time. I guess is the fundamental bottom line. And so what came out of the Paris conference, the only one I've ever attended actually, um, was, that well, why don't we go the other way around? Why don't we set the broad objective mm. of the global community's uh, point about achieving the control of climate change and then leave it up to the individual nation states to put forward how they will contribute to achieving that objective? Now, the risk is and turned out to be, that the commitments that have been made by all of those countries, including Australia, don't add up to meeting the overall objective. And that's where we are now. And now the process, one of the important reasons for the COP26 in Glasgow is to try and close the gap between what was and remains the overall objective, but the gap between that and the sum total of all the commitments the individual countries have made.
0: Okay. So is there actually a possibility of that occurring, that we will close that gap? Or will this be another conference where there's some lofty rhetoric and there are some, some aspirational targets and, uh, and nothing actually, well, very little happens ultimately? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: <laughs> if you took the view that um, something's happened 10 times before and just maybe this time we'll do something different, <laughs> you would say no. <laughs> mm. The probability of getting something of real substance uh, it has, is not very high. However, there are some reasons for optimism. I think some of which I've already partly mentioned, Gene, and also because yeah. you know we've just seen, despite COVID and alongside COVID, maybe um, you know a Northern Hemisphere summer, which was in some countries pretty horrendous, mm. and, and we're almost without debate the correlation between that those weather events, the flooding, the wildfires in so many countries, has been directly linked to climate change in ways that have I don't think have rarely been linked before. So I think the governments have now got that on the agenda. Plus, I think this general movement towards net zero is there. Um, uh, So I'm a a little bit more optimistic. optimistic. Now, I don't think we're going to walk away from the the, the Glasgow summit with some magical new set of commitments that add up also reflecting your point. But just because countries have made these commitments doesn't mean that they're immediately going to achieve them. Even including the United States, of course, because you know President Biden's chances of getting substantial legislation through Congress are probably even worse than Morrison's um, capacity for getting it through the coalition party room. So it's it's not exactly a walk in the park. But you know I think there's a there is a maybe because it was held over for a year, but I think there is a lot more there is optimism. Um, I'd like to think it won't be dashed completely but I also don't think it'll be fulfilled completely.
0: Mm. Now, in Grattan, you've emphasised or in your reports, you argue that a carbon price is the best way to, to facilitate that transition to net zero that needs to occur, but you, you also recognise that that's politically infeasible in Australia and probably in many other countries, so we, we end up having to do other things. Would, would you be able to give some idea of I mean, just how are we going to get to net zero? Let, let's just talk about Australia because we've we've got some big challenges here. I mean, we've got to transform many of our industries. Is it feasible to get to net zero by 2050, which is that aspiration within Australia?
1: Well, it is, but it's neither as easy as some people would like to think or as difficult as others would like to think, as a lot of these difficult problems mm. are. People at the extremes are rarely completely correct. So it is, I think it is feasible and it is feasible to do it using a different approach to having a economy-wide carbon price uh, mechanism. Uh, they still exist in some many parts of the world, as it turns out, and there are probably more countries um, signing up for those sorts of um, policies than are moving away from them. But in Australia, it's very challenging to see how that, well, it's just not on the agenda. For either of our two major political parties. And so you've got to think about, well, if we are committed to net zero, which we seem to be, I mean, mm. you know, the objective is net zero, um, the question about, preferably by 2050, then how do we get there? Um, now, I'm not one to tell governments what to do. I'm more interested in saying, well, if that's what you want to do, yeah, let's see how we could do it.
0: Okay. And so you've looked at, most recently, you've looked at agriculture, haven't you? So What's the prospect of getting to net zero in agriculture and what are the sort of things you'd have to do?
1: I guess at one stage it's it's worthwhile just briefly reflecting on what net zero actually means because it's a term that's only emerged relatively recently. I mean, we used to talk about certain levels of CO2 emissions or certain temperature increases and of course net zero is related to temperature increases, but the concept of net zero sounds a bit You know, it's become almost part of the uh, general conversation, yet I'm not sure many people know what net zero means. What it literally means is that we have to return the global climate to what it used to be before the industrial and agricultural revolutions. That is, every tonne of greenhouse gases that is put into the atmosphere by humans and other animals is taken out of the atmosphere by plants and oceans. That's it. Um, And when we did that, when the world used to work that way, we had a stable climate. Now, what we've done is managed to screw screw that up over the last several hundred years, and the objective of net zero is to get back there. And the reason it's net is because it's pretty well recognised that getting back to absolute zero is almost impossible, if not effectively so. Mm. So that means we have to get as low as we possibly can, and then whatever's left above zero has to be offset with negatives. That is taking emissions out of the atmosphere, which is a technology challenge in itself. The question is, how far can we get down towards zero before we have to start then offsetting out what remains of our emissions with something else.
0: Okay. And so what are those, uh, what are those ways of getting it out or, or, uh, or offsetting it? That's, that's things like uh, offsets. Is it not clearing land or protecting forests? It's, could it be direct capture of CO2 from the atmosphere? Have you had a look at those sort of things?
1: Most of what we do so far and have been doing isn't so much about removing emissions, uh, greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, it's about reducing the amount we're putting into the atmosphere. So when we, for example, have made a lot of of progress in the last five to ten years uh, on reducing emissions from our electricity system, we've basically been moving away from coal and towards renewables. Now that is reducing the emissions, right? Yeah. Um, Similarly, if we go to electric vehicles for our transport, that would be the same thing. Um, The things that Actually, remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Generally speaking, there's three or four, and not very many. Um, one is planting trees and then um, hoping those trees stay there for a long time. Of course, there's trees don't necessarily. So there's a question of what happens with those trees. Secondly, there is um, what's called re establishing soil carbon. And that is the idea is that over the last couple of hundred years, as a result of agriculture, we have been reducing the amount of carbon in our soil, which has uh, impacts on um, the soil um, uh, fertility and therefore even on farming. And so re-establishing that carbon in the soils would be not only good for the environment from a carbon perspective, but would also be good for farming productivity. Um, The third area is, um, and you mentioned it, Gene, that is um, direct, direct air capture. Mm. The idea basically can sound a little bit like engineering gone mad, <laughs> but it's basically huge vacuum cleaners sucking CO2 effectively out of the atmosphere, absorbing that into some sort of chemical, possibly then recreating CO2 and then doing something else with it. Um, and that's where the, this direct air capture technology gets linked with carbon capture and storage because the idea is once you've captured the CO2 from the atmosphere – um, remembering this is an atmosphere it's got, even though we talk about and worry about a lot, the concentration of the CO2 is in a couple of hundred parts per million. So um, getting, it, getting that a level of CO2 out of the atmosphere is not a trivial process. But then once you've got it, you either bury it deep underground yeah, or you do something even more prospective but equally challenging, and that is to turn it into something else like um, turn CO2, if you're anybody on this uh, listening to this podcast is a chemist, turning CO2 into CO3 or carbonate, um, sodium bicarbonate, magnesium carbonate, calcium carbonate, which is limestone, all those sorts of stuff, some of which could be used as building materials. So that's the concept. Now, of all those um, direct air cap, of all those carbon removal processes, they all tend to either be um, relatively low cost, but difficult to prove and difficult to scale up. Yeah, We don't want to plant, you know, as Matt Canavan says, we don't want to replace all of our farming lands with forest because um, that would have a, a huge um, impact on our food production and all, also on our regional and um, you know, rural towns. But um, so there's that one. The direct air capture is right now really expensive, and there's a lot of uh, potential issues around. Can we saw that CO two underground the way we would like to think we can? And soil carbon also is quite problematic in terms of how do you get the carbon into the soil. And how do you make it stay there? Because even the changing climate itself is contributing to the loss of carbon from our soil. So um, offsetting, when, you, when I describe it that way, sounds like a really big challenge down the track. We don't have to get be doing it today because most of our activity today could be concentrated on reducing emissions. Mm. And ultimately, as we get closer to the points where reducing emissions further is very hard, then offsetting will become important. So getting on top of the technologies now is the most important thing we can do with offsetting.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Ben and I have been looking at what was that product called from CSIRO? Uh,
2: Red algae. Um, oh yes, it's the algae that reduces um, methane production in in cows' guts by up to eighty percent. Oh yeah, that's with the the cattle. That's
0: reducing the emissions. I was thinking of the air capture thing too. The CSIRO air theta. Yeah. So. That's one thing we've looked at for. Uh, we've looked at the economics of that, and potentially that could be promising if uh, if you can do it on a yeah. If if they can reduce the cost per unit uh, to to our customers, it could end up being quite a good good solution. So yeah, just just wait and see. There's such a big, there's such a huge need for technological innovation. So I was reading Bill Gates's book on how to avert a climate disaster, and it seemed to be that. In every area we need to innovate in, we, well, we need innovation. We need it in uh, industrial processes. We, we need it in energy still. We need it in battery technology. We need it in uh, potentially in pumped hydro. There's all sorts of innovation that we could do there. It, and it, it sounds like we might need it in that uh, capturing the carbon too and in agriculture. I mean, Ben was mentioning red algae to try and reduce the methane emissions from cattle and because that's a major source of, of emissions in ag. Is it is it the fact that we just need all this technological innovation that hasn't occurred yet, or is there stuff sitting on the shelf that we can use to reduce emissions now, and it's just a matter of our willi- willingness to pay for it?
1: Well, I think that's a good way to phrase it, I think, Gene, and I think it's actually a mixture of... The way we think about it is three things. Firstly, there are those things we know about already, some of which yep. we've already started to do, but need to be scaled up dramatically, which are relatively low cost. An obvious one, for example, would be battery electric vehicles. I mean, they're already cheaper to run than petrol cars, yep. and they'll very shortly be cheaper to buy as well. So they're the sort of things that we should be encouraging very strongly, and we wrote a report about transport along those lines. So there's those. So every sector has something like that. There are things we can do on-farm that would reduce emissions, um, not, the, not the algae stuff yet, but other things on, because a lot of activity on farmers associated with the way we treat manure, the way we use fertilizer, the way farmers use diesel tractors, all that sort of stuff. There's, every sector's got some of those. Then there are those things which are pretty well known, but right now are expensive. So for example, uh, a lot of things associated with the possible roles that hydrogen could play in, relate, in replacing natural gas, not only in energy, but more particularly as a feedstock for chemical production, explosives, and those sorts of things. That's still very expensive. We, and also for, say, for a long distance transport, for fuel cell electric vehicles, a lot of technology work to be done there. But we know what they are. The trick is to drive the cost down. And then the third area is the ones that look much harder. They're almost theoretical. Um, I, I would right now put the red, red algae in that category. Um, some of the other activities there, um, things to do with the way we make cement, um, um. is very difficult, right? Very. I mean, steel is pot. We know how to do it with steel. It's still very expensive. So, cement. Some of these things are difficult. Um, the algae thing, for example, not only is the issue, is there an issue about the algae itself? Because, um, as Ben said, um, more than eighty percent of the emissions could be reduced in at least. That's what it looks like in 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 um, sort of testing so far. The problem is that. Um, in Australia, particularly, we have free-range cattle and you've got to work out how do I get the algae into the cattle Yeah, because um, they only spend a very short ma- amount of their life in a feedlot. So yeah. there's a lot of practical issues associated with those sorts of activities, I think. So, th- so today we should be doing the things we know about, which are relatively cost-effective. We should be working to drive down the cost of the things we know about that are expensive, and that's where the government's technology investment roadmap comes in. And we should be doing the research and development in those things that are still prospective, but which we will need if we're going to get anywhere near net zero. And that's the way I think about it, those are three broad categories.
0: Yeah. What about nuclear energy, Tony? So Ben and I had a podcast discussion a couple of months ago on nuclear energy, and that, that came out of some work Ben did when he was doing an internship with... Uh, it was via ANU, and he ended up spending some time in Matt Canavan's office. Do you have any thoughts on the economics of nuclear? Could that be part of the solution,
1: both here in Australia and globally? Well, interestingly, you mentioned the economics of nuclear, because it was the economics of nuclear which explained why we don't have nuclear, at least was at very early stages of the industry in Australia, because there was a proposal to build a nuclear power station in Victoria, and the I think the late 60s or early Hmm. 70s, something like that. Um, And the reason I'm told it didn't go ahead wasn't because of all concerns about nuclear waste or nuclear weapons. It was because um, it was a lot cheaper to build big coal-fired power stations. Hmm. Um, So that went pretty well for the next 50 years, right? Um, The the challenge with nuclear is that they only come in one size, which is extra, extra, extra large at the moment, bloody expensive, and it's really hard, except outside – countries where you've got centralised governments who pay for everything to get these put up by the private sector, even in the UK where they're building a couple. You know, these things are twice the size of most coal-fired power stations. The rehabilitation costs are very high. The contract that that particular group have written with the British government is very expensive mm-hmm. compared to everything else. So um, why would nuclear ever be part of the equation in Australia? And I think there are two issues or two um developments that could trigger all this one would be if it turns out that as we get beyond where we are today which is 25 percent of our electricity coming from renewables as we get away from gas towards electricity as we go away from petrol and diesel towards electricity and we increase the proportion of electricity coming from wind and solar it will become very difficult to get the last few percent of the electricity coming from wind and solar because there are periods of time when the wind isn't blowing the sun isn't shining and it's bloody cold um, and what are you going to do for you know periods of a couple of weeks really hard yeah we may solve that problem in the next 20 or 30 years but right now we don't have an answer to that problem that i've seen that makes any credible sense so that's one yeah. it might be plan a might turn out to be very hard the other combination in that would be if small modular nuclear reactors turn out to be cost effective and there are comp- not, not just small companies like nuscale in the us but companies like rolls royce who are convinced that if you could build 100 or 200, 300 megawatt coal fired uh, nuclear power stations in a factory, you could really drive down the cost dramatically. And you could put them in a box. A bit like right. you, know, you may have seen in the last couple of weeks, these nuclear submarines that we're talking yeah. about buying. Um, you basically stick them in the sub and leave them there for 40 years. I mean, you basically have it, it's like a you know, power in a box in a sense. So that's prospective. So if they, if they turn out to be, commercially viable and as fail safe as we like as we as people think, and plan A turns about to be difficult, mm. then I think you've got to allow for nuclear as being something we should look at. And I think um we'll we'll see how this goes. But I you know at the moment I'd say it's less likely, but I'd put those two caveats on it.
0: Yeah. So plan A, which is we we do get as much from well, we basically move to renewables and it's firmed up or backed up by storage. But at the moment that looks are very difficult to do because you need massive improvements in battery technology or we'd need to have all of these pumped hydroelectric uh, facilities or plants all around the place and, uh, and obviously that, that could come at a very high cost and there'd be environmental concerns and all of that. Sure. So, yeah. Okay. The, what's called, the, the,
1: the term that people use is deep storage. Deep storage. Well, what you've got to be able to do is what? Well, one could argue this is what God in her wisdom did originally, um, created all the stuff called coal and oil and gas which has been stored there for a long time. We didn't have to pay to put it there. Now Mm -hmm. we can bring it out whenever we want to. Um, If we could do the same thing with something else, like, for example, hydrogen, the problem is you can make it, then you've got to leave it sitting there, maybe for a couple of years, just on those circumstances where you're going to use it, which means it could be very expensive to do so. I mean, I can give you several ways it could be done, but I don't find any of them yet to be compellingly the right answer.
0: Right, okay. Ben, do you have any thoughts or questions for Tony?
2: Um, I actually did and it, it goes um, back to the start of the conversation about COP26 and around the international environment that's kind of mustering around, you know, a real desire to to actually make something that uh, that has a bit of change. And I wanted to hear your opinion on carbon border taxes and whether or not you see these more heavy-handed international approaches to reaching net zero actually having an impact on, on countries like Australia who are slightly perhaps lagging behind um, our international peers.
1: Yeah, look, Ben, I think it's an interesting development and for a while they were just sort of put it in a little box by themselves as something a little bit quirky that only the Europeans would think about. But when you consider it a bit more, I came to a different conclusion and that is that, you know, 20 years ago people were thinking about having international carbon pricing, we'd all have different forms of carbon taxes or emissions trading schemes. And even, you know, in between 2012 and 2014, when the, um, the Gillard government introduced um, what Tony Abbott described as a carbon tax, um, the idea was if, if, if Labor had been re-elected in 2014, they were going to link the Australian trading scheme with the European trading scheme, and we would have had a common carbon price, right? Now, and that just creates international trading.
2: Mm.
1: It, well, that's, that just had not worked. So what happens what's I think go, could happen here is that if a country like the UK like the European community they're imposing a carbon price in whatever mechanism they use on their manufacturers of stuff um, and they're paying that carbon price. we then someone in the UK wants to import stuff from Australia which doesn't have a carbon price. It seems fair enough in a sense. To be uh, to even up the playing field for those countries to say, Well, you wait a second, you can't get away with that. Um, you've got to pay the same carbon prices we're putting onto our own suppliers of these things, wine, beef, whatever it might be. And so we'll impose this carbon border adjustment mechanism. Now, they're tricky to calculate because they've got to be done absolutely on an uh, equivalent basis. And they've got to be done so they don't breach WTO trading laws. It can be done. I'm sure, in a way that works. Now, the reason it's interesting is then if that happened, whatever combination of countries you talk about, but in the example I just used, if Australian companies wanting to export their stuff to the UK are paying a border tax to the UK government, some bright spark might say, well, this is pretty stupid. If we're going to pay this bloody tax, why don't we pay it to the Australian government and keep the money in Australia? And so if Australia then said, okay, well, we'll put in place a carbon price of a similar size, suddenly you've got the world all moving together. And the idea that, you know, all that's going to happen is one country, you know, puts its own businesses uh, out of business by imposing a carbon tax they just go somewhere else where they can emit without worry, that world starts to change. And that's where I think the positive output or the positive outcome of carbon border adjustment mechanism has been could actually be, a way of moving towards a more global approach to um, emissions reduction in a way that doesn't unfairly disadvantage countries who have gone first.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, Tony. And you reminded me that I think it was the Rudd Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme which had the idea that, well, the money you raise from the carbon price or the sale of emissions permits, I think it was an emissions trading scheme if I remember correctly, that would be rebated it would be they'd pay it out in compensation to households and and some businesses if I remember correctly so that's yeah so if you I guess that logic or it's logical you're what if you're getting hit by these carbon border adjustment taxes wouldn't it be better if you paid those taxes to your own uh own government that seems to make sense so just one more question one final question have you thought about coal like we're in Ben and I are in Queensland and it, it our economy it, it, like it's an important industry. I, I wouldn't. I know you, we've got there are all these estimates of just how important it is, and some of them are probably a bit overdone. But it's certainly substantial, and particularly in some region or regional economies such as Central Queensland, and and it, it does pay a lot of money into the treasury each year. And with the current coal price, we're, we're talking additional billions of dollars. So, have you thought about how we transition away from coal? Like, do we have to? Uh, is is it? Are we talking ten years, twenty years, thirty years? Yeah. Have you done any thinking on that?
1: Well, if you look at the figures that BP published this week, we haven't got very long at all. Right. <laughs> um, they, their global outlook shows coal falling off a cliff almost. Um, look, I think there's interesting. coal's a really an interesting story in a sense because, despite what the current resources minister says about, well, Australia will decide what happens to our coal industry. The truth is, we won't. Someone else, will. Yeah. our customers, will decide what happens to our coal industry and many of our customers have now signed up themselves to net zero, whether they're genuine or not, we will see. And that's the international side of this. So um, I think the timing may not be as dramatic as BP would suggest, but you can, I think, be very confident that the direction and destination is clear. It's only a matter of how quickly, and this could accelerate quite quickly. So what that means is the following. We have, about 100,000 people employed in what we've described in our work as carbon-intensive jobs. Yeah. Um, Those people, in some cases, at the last election, I don't think voted against action on climate change. They voted against losing their jobs. And the Labor Party, to be fair, did not do a very good job at giving those people um, a vision of what they would transition to. A Just transition makes no sense. If you're a relatively young family man, most of them are men, Um, often not tertiary educated, and you're being told your job of $150,000 a year is going to go and you're going to be paid to work in the tourist industry, you're not very excited by that, right? So that's the problem. Now, are there some alternatives? Yes, there are. And now's the time where we do have the economic um, benefit of, of the coal industry right now in terms of the jobs, in terms of the economic prosperity we enjoy, to use that prosperity to fund the next generation of what's to come. And I think the big, and this is where I think the most positive story about out of all this comes out, it's not about building more renewable energy farms, wind farms or solar farms. It's can we use the comparative advantage that Australia will have as a very big country, with a lot of wind and solar that we don't need for ourselves, to use that to manufacture materials based upon our mineral resources. Yeah. So instead of exporting our metallurgical coal, to be combined with our iron ore, why don't we do that in Australia and make the iron ore in this country with renewable hydrogen? Why don't we make the renewable, what are called the critical minerals, the nickel, the lithium and those things in Australia using renewable energy, our mineral resources? And that would potentially and possibly even easily replace the jobs and the economic prosperity that we currently get from coal.
0: Yeah, this is what Ross Garno calls the superpower yep. opportunity. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just on those customers. So I was just going through them. So Japan, I think they're, they've committed to net zero by some date, haven't they? Uh, or so? Are you, are you saying
1: Japan, Korea, China, all of them? Even yeah. China, right? China, right. China's net zero by twenty sixty, but
0: okay. But then, I mean, there's all this scepticism about China and we've got a senator in Australia who's saying, oh, well, we should not worry about net zero and our big threat is uh, we've got a strategic threat from China. But, I mean, yeah, I- I'm not sure. The problem- I shouldn't ask you to comment on that because who knows? I mean, so hard like when to... When I
1: talk to people on the ground in Queen- central Queensland, in central New South Wales, in the Illawarra region of New South Wales, those guys, the guys in the orange and green vest, yellow vests, they can see what's happening. Yeah. They don't need someone like me to tell them what's happening. What they're worried about is they can see that future and they're interested in making the the transition, but they want to know, okay, what can we do? I mean, suggesting we can protect them from Mm. what's almost certainly going to happen anyway, they've got pretty good bullshit meters, to be honest. Yeah. And so the issue is to say, okay, let's not scare people. Yeah. This is not about to happen today or tomorrow, but – even if it happens more slowly than people would suggest, Jen, I think um, this is a risk we have to think about. And if we plan for that future and we start to transition some of these communities and these workers to different industries, if it turns out the coal lasts longer, that's great, and we can slow down a bit. If it turns out that everything moves much faster and the world really does shut down some of this stuff, we can move faster. But if we don't start, we'll never get there.
0: Yeah, Exactly. So we've got to start thinking about things like retraining schemes or some assistance to help people relocate. Absolutely. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, ben, any final any final questions or comments for Tony? Um,
2: I'm all good, at mine. that was <laughs> that was really great, Tony. Thank you very much. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, you two will be uh,
0: maybe working together soon. Because uh, Ben, one thing I should mention, if you're listening, Ben has been doing some uh, work with the Grattan Institute. So you've done an internship with Grattan with uh, with the other team, with the transport team. So, uh, yes, uh, yeah, great uh, great institute, does some really good work. Uh, Tony, any uh, final
1: thoughts before we wrap up? Now, look, I think, you know, I, the, the, the issue that's really interesting at the moment is this is a conversation that Australians are now having at a level that we haven't seen for a long time. I don't think it's going to go away. Industry is supporting this. Broadly speaking, the political uh, families are supporting it. I understand the tensions within some parts of the Liberal National Coalition. I think pragmatic politicians will find a way through this. It, might be, it won't be pretty, and it might not be as much as some would like, but I think we are more likely, even in Australia than internationally, to see some real progress on this because there's just so much momentum built up. I think it's inevitable.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I think certainly uh, yeah, we'll have to see some changes being made to uh, to reach those targets. And, again, the only thing I worry about is that, I'm worried that Australia will will commit to doing all these things, and we'll do a lot, and possibly the rest of the world doesn't do anything. And I'm not sure that makes sense. But no, yeah, uh, I guess. We don't
1: have to. I mean, we can start the. You know, if we we need to, we can slow down. It's not as though we have to turn the lights off tomorrow.
0: True. We're not talking
1: about turning the lights off. If we want to begin to make a transition to what seems to be the most likely future, then let's start to do that. But so, my, my my way of thinking about this is to hope for the best but plan for the worst. Yep, that's
0: a good uh, a good motto or a good approach to life in general, I think. So Tony Wood, Director of the Energy Program at Grattan, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thanks, Gene. See you around. Thanks, Ben. I'll see you too. Cheers, Tony.
0: Cheers. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening.
2: Until next week, goodbye.